There's something we are eagerly pursuing is to worship newly. And um, Scott and his team that uh, just led us in worship, their pursuit each week is uh, really lately. And we want to really stay in this place. We want to pray for them and pray that we can stay in this place too. Where every time we sit that we treat our time together as if it's our first and our last. And um, that's what it means to worship newly. And especially appropriate after studying Amos this week and some of the things that, that we're engaging this morning that we're serious about treating this time as a big, important, heavy, weighty, urgent time. So, Scott, uh, I realize that if you've been kind of conditioned to a church environment, that you may have kind of a routine of songs that you, you're familiar with, that you love, and um, this may be very different. And different can be good because you can find yourself really in a routine where you're more about the chorus and harmonizing and, you know, sounding good and kind of how it gets you excited uh, than really the, the truth that you're engaging. So this morning, just bathing in Scripture. Bathing in Scripture and singing, begging, Lord, please quicken us to not worship you um, just in, in, in mouth, in body only, but in, especially in heart. Um, that'll be my prayer as we begin this morning. I want to pray also for Brad Strand of Harvest Bible Church. And uh, Sheila Avance called early this morning, and her father had a heart attack in the wee hours this morning. So I want to pray for Sheila and her family. Let's pray. Lord, uh, this morning we want to lift up Brad Strand and his family. I just want to thank you so much for a brother in the faith that is about um, shepherding and leading your people and um, preaching the word and engaging the lost, enjoying you out loud. Lord, I pray that those things are truly taking place, that it's being wrought from uh, being wrecked by the word. and then leading to worship, and then leading to um, shepherding and harvesting and sowing. And uh, Lord, I just pray for this church, Harvest Bible Church. Pray that that the gospel is is preached, the robust gospel is preached. I pray that the the biblical picture, the true picture of belief, um, is engaged. Lord, I pray that you will guard them and guard us and every other Christian church in this community from lightening and and softening the picture of forsaking all and bearing a cross and dying daily and uh, surrendering and pursuing and and clinging and Lord I pray for this church uh, Harvest Bible Church that they with us and with the other Christian churches in this community can present those robust challenging even alarming and disturbing truths and realities Lord, I pray that in that, that you will honor that obedience to the word and enduring and sound doctrine and that you will draw your people in Greenville, that you will gather your lost sheep, that you will gather the elect from the four winds and pray that we will be obedient about engaging your truth and responding to the people that you're bringing. Lord, we love you so much. We just want to turn this time over to you. We want to be all there in worship in these next few minutes. We want our words to be few, and we want them to be true. And we want them to impact lives and hearts beyond uh, noon today. 
We want them to invade Monday, Tuesday, and the rest of the week and invade every space, home, work, car, um, front yard, backyard, every place that we are. We just want it to uh, saturate. Lord, we love you. Oh, also, we pray for uh, Sheila Avance and her family. Lord, we pray for her father. Just pray that if it's your will, that he will be healed. I pray for wisdom on the part of the doctors. I pray that Sheila and her family will trust you and rest in you, that they will just have a a distinct and clear picture of you on your throne and not caught unaware by this, but uh, fully aware. And I pray that they're looking for your glory in this also. We love you, Lord. We turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to John chapter 12. Let me give you a little brief introduction to where we are in John chapter 12. John 12 kind of introduces us to the last of what really in the book of John is called the glory book, or excuse me, the book of signs. We're, we're coming to a close in the book of signs and moving into the glory book in John 12. The book of signs were completed when Jesus called Lazarus uh, forth from death to life. And then in John chapter 12, he's moving into the last week of his life or so, uh, where we've really been spending a lot of time recently is on Sunday morning, on Palm Sunday, when he enters Jerusalem, and he's, he's going to minister, preach, wash feet, do all sorts of things in these last few days. The rest of the book of John, a good portion of it, is made up of these last few days leading up into the cross and then the resurrection. So here we are on Sunday, he's been preaching And John takes a little brief moment to kind of give a little bit of commentary on what we've seen from Christ's ministry to date. And that commentary begins in verse 37 and goes all the way through verse 43 in John chapter 12. Verses 37 through 41 we engaged about a month ago, and that was that really kind of somewhat alarming for many, disturbing challenging sermon, the God-glorifying work of plucking and drawing some and hardening others. Pretty challenging truths in there, but where we're going to pick up this morning is in verse 42, and we're just going to consider verse 42 and 43. So that's where I'm going to begin this morning. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. That's good, right? It's a good thing. We like to see that word believed. We're going to engage that word today and consider what that really means for these many, even of the authorities. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Okay, I want to reduce the problem. We've just read it. I know that you may not have read this ahead of time, and that's okay. I encourage you to do that, though. You know where I'm going the next week. But let me reduce the problem just so we can examine it this morning. Many, and in this case, even of the authorities, which is pretty surprising, believed in Christ, but they did not confess their belief. That's a key reality that we're going to engage this morning. And this believing many, the dynamics there, is that they loved the glory of man 
more than they loved and valued the glory of God. Now, you might be hearing that and you're thinking, man, okay, that, that's cool. I'm kind of getting that. Glory from man, glory from God. I might kind of get that. We sing about glory. You know, we read about glory. It's all over our Bible, but we may not really understand what it's saying. And in this context, let me introduce you to the context. A verse that's probably very familiar to many of you, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and all fall short of God's glory. That may be a very familiar verse to you. And you're thinking, okay, we fall short of His splendor, His majesty, His holiness. Those are kind of pictures of glory. But the use of that word, the way it's translated... The way it's to be understood there and the way it's to be understood here is for all have sinned and all fall short of God's approval. Okay, so I'm going to read this verse again so you can piece this thing together. They loved the approval that comes from man more than the approval that comes from God. Okay, the problem is they believed and did not confess and the dynamics is that they loved the approval from man more than they love the approval from God. Now, I want us in these next few minutes to consider what that really means. And I want to warn you, what we find in the next few minutes may, and it will likely make many of you very uncomfortable. It may in some ways explain to you how a guy who's been pastoring preaching for four years and a few months, a guy that's been teaching for years, a guy that began the journey of faith at the age of six, could say something, like I said last week, that I know alarmed a lot of people. I don't sit around saying, I know I'm saved. It might explain why I would say last week that the more I study, the more I tremble. This sermon that we're about to engage may explain why I would say something like that. It might help explain why I quake at the thought of eternity. Truths that we're engaged, we're going to engage this morning. Now, first, I want to consider the dynamics of what these guys were doing. They loved man's approval. Okay, what does that mean? First of all, the word love is the word agape son. And the word agape, if, if you're familiar with that at all, you know that that's the decision sort of love that a man and woman should have for each other. It's not taught very much what is really based on a lot of marriage, or the sort of love that really is, is fueling a lot of marriages, and not for long, is eros, which is erotic sort of love that doesn't last forever. It comes and goes. And, but agape, and it's not phileo love, which is brotherly love. Agape love is decision love. I'm deciding to love you, woman, even though there are times where you don't rate it. You don't deserve it. And thankfully, you've decided to love me, even though there's times where I don't deserve it. And I don't treat you like I ought to. Agape sort of love has to do with a decision to love. And that's the sort of love that's taking place here. These guys, these many who were believing, even, even of the authority, decided to long for, they decided to desire and they decided to place in their, first in their affections the approval of man. Now, if you think, man, that's really kind of weird. I just can't imagine anybody doing that. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's so easy at first blush on some of the sins of the Jews and some of the sins of the Pharisees to just dismiss them. 
and just go, man, I'm so glad we're not like those jokers. But then the more you really examine them, you go, ooh, maybe I'm more like them than I realize. These guys love the approval of man more than they love the approval of God. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, and he's reminding them of the character of his ministry toward them. And this is what he says in verse 5. He says, We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory, it's the same use of that word, approval, from people, whether you are from others, though we could have made demands as apostle of Christ, we were gentle among you. See, the reason Paul mentions this is our ministry was not like this is because that's what man is like. Our ministry was unique, and our ministry was divine, and our ministry came from another resource because what's wired into us, what's natural for us is to love man's approval and to seek man's approval and to seek glory from man. We need something divine. We need something outside of us working within us to not need this and to not want this. You might even at this point think, man, I don't really think I'm driven by a love for man's approval. But I want you to think about some of your favorite people. Just personalize this for a moment. Think, okay, who are my favorite people? Who do I enjoy being around most of all? I bet in that list of people will be some people that praise you. Some people that pat you on the back. People say, man, you sure are handsome. You sure are stylish. You sure are wise. You are so good at your job. You're a great mom. You're a great husband. We want to be around those sort of people because we're wired to love man's approval. You've got to recognize that this thing is not just so separate from us that we can dismiss it. This is personal. We're wired to love this. It's all over us. It's all in us. But here's the problem. Turn back to John chapter 5. Here's where things get really dangerous. John chapter 5 Verse 41, this is what Jesus says about that love of man's approval. Listen to what he says. John chapter 5, verse 41, he says, I do not receive glory or approval from people. Jesus is not sitting around waiting for us to go, okay, good job, Jesus. We approve. We approve of your preaching. We approve of your ministry. He's not waiting to receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. He's speaking to those who are not believing. He says, I know you don't have the love of God within you. Realize who he's speaking to. He says, I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. Okay, you don't have the love of God within you, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. And then next he says, how can you believe? In other words, you can't believe. You who do not receive me, you who do not have the love of God in me, because you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory or the approval that comes only from God. The reality is, is that we cannot be driven and owned by a pursuit of approval from man. That cannot coexist with true belief. This thing is so natural, this thing that we are just so wired for, <laughs> loving those 
who pat us on the back and stroke us is the very thing that Jesus says, if you're driven by that, then you can't believe in me. They cannot coexist. These guys, this many, even of the authorities that believed in him, they loved man's approval, and this is a very real and very attractive love. Don't you dismiss it. Second dynamic that was going on there in these people, these many who believed, is that they feared the Pharisees. Turn to John chapter 9. I want you to understand why they feared the Pharisees. And I'm going to share a little bit more detailed story of what's going on in John chapter 9 because it's going to come around later on. John chapter 9, Jesus is walking around with his disciples and they see a blind guy. And the disciples ask, Rabbi, who sinned, this, this man or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. This, this is, he's blind so that I can be glorified through this. He wasn't saying these people were without sin. He's saying that their sin was not tied to his blindness. Basically, he goes on, he spits in the ground, and he makes a little mud pie, a couple of them, I guess, and maybe one, and splits it in two. I don't know how it works exactly, but puts it on each of the guy's eyes and then sends him off to the pool of Siloam to wash. And when he washes, he walks away, and he can see this man who's been blind his whole life. And you can imagine, he's seeing things and jumping around and enjoying this newfound vision, and his neighbors and friends are seeing him and saying, hey, man, is this the same guy that's been sitting begging forever, the blind guy? And he's now seeing. And some others say, no, he, he looks like him, but I don't think it's the same one. And then he's jumping up and down saying, no, I'm the same one. Look, I can see now. I used to be blind. I'm that same guy. So they bring him before the Pharisees. And the man who had been, they bring this man who had been formerly blind before the Pharisees. And now it was a Sabbath day in verse 14 when Jesus had made the mud and opened his eyes. That's what the Pharisees are upset about. That he did this on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees again asked him how he received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there's a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, I, I don't know, he must be a prophet. I, I don't know. Pretty Incredible what he's done there. Maybe he's a prophet. Well, the Jews did not believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked him, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, well, um, We know this is our son. <laughs> we know that he was born blind. We were there. Maybe they're the ones that deposit him at the gate to beg every day. But how he sees now, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. In other words, they're saying, he can speak for himself. Leave us out of it. Now, what sort of fear, what sort of dynamic would be taking place where a parent would bail on their child? It's explained here in the next verse. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He's of age. Ask him. Leave me out of it. 
Now, again, this may seem like an easy fear to dismiss. You have a a vision of these Pharisees. I can dismiss Pharisees, no problem. But you got to imagine, you got to climb into this and imagine being a Jew. You got to imagine that for 1,500 years, that the Jews have worshiped in tabernacle or temple. You got to understand that the Jews, forever, for the, as far as they know, this is the way that they engage God. And for fear of being put out of that relationship, put out of that opportunity to engage God, to follow you who may be God, that's a very real fear. Don't dismiss the love for man's approval and don't dismiss their fear. The fear of being put out of the synagogue it essentially meant, you want me to turn my back on what we've known as God in following what we believe may be God. That's a worthy fear. And it's strong enough for a parent to abandon their own child. Leave me out of it. He's of age. I want to share with you whatever excuse you may have for not being vocal about Your faith in Christ, it pales to this fear. God has given us the most extreme fear this side of death. And he said, even that should not be strong enough to keep you silent about your Christ. Two strong and real things work together in these guys. The love of man's approval which you got to be honest with, we're wired for, that you know you love, I know I love, and the fear of being put out of the synagogue, a very real and worthy fear. And the impact it is that they did not confess their belief because of these two dynamics. I hope at this point you're like me. You're wondering, I mean, as I was studying this and engaging this sermon in the last few weeks and preparing for this, I'm thinking, who are these guys? What are they, really? That's the question we want to ask. I mean, they believed and they didn't confess. Is there some sort of like believing without the confession option sort of package? Are they on the believing minus confession package? I mean, I'm asking that question. Are these guys going to be saved? That's the question I'm asking. It's it's a natural question. So let's let's go look at a few verses. John chapter 2. I'm going to show you six verses in John so that you can appreciate what we're seeing right here. John chapter 2, verse 23. We're going to look at it very briefly, and we'll have to, to flip and turn quickly. John chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Okay, cool. Many believed. Let's look at the next one. Chapter 7, verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Man, this guy's doing some incredible stuff. This must be him. And it says they believed in him. Look at chapter 8, verse 30. He's just preached about being the light of the world. And it says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Man, if you're like me, my first reading of these, I'm like, man, that's cool. As I'm reading, I'm hearing, I'm seeing this kingdom just being developed and these souls being added to the kingdom and thrown into heaven, jerked from hell to heaven. But then we read further. Chapter 10, verse 42. The picture even develops more. 
It doesn't turn quite yet. Chapter 10, verse 42, it says, And many believed in him there. Chapter 11, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, he raised Lazarus from death to life, believed in him. Cool, man, the kingdom is really getting stuffed and packed. Now, chapter 12, verse 11. Because on account of him, this is Lazarus walking around eating, talking, having been dead for four days and decaying. Because on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Believers all over the place. Man, this, his ministry is really successful. But then in John chapter 12, verse 37, where John, who was there for every moment of it, where John, who was there to write each of those six verses we just looked at, and many believed in him, many believed in him, many believed in him, where he stops down and he shares the character of this ministry to date, Listen to what he says in John chapter 12, verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Huh? Man, I thought people were believing all over the place. You just gave us six verses there, John. And now you're saying that still nobody believed in him? I, I, th- th- there's a quandary there. There's something that's developing there. And what seems to be developing is that there seems to be levels of belief. Some saving, some not. It's a difficult little nuance. But it's one worth engaging this is where I start to tremble. This is where I start to quake. I'm going to call them two different kinds of belief. We're going to examine both of them just very briefly. The first is milk toast belief. Milk toast is just a, a phrase that I could think of. It's just really, it, it, it's, it's kind of, I don't know, been for malnourished or incomplete milk toast. You know, you Nancy boy is another one. That Nancy boy, that's kind of. And then there's chest hair, true belief. Okay, so we got milk toast belief, and we got full on true chest hair belief. First, regarding the milk toast belief, turn back to John chapter 8. This is one of those passages where I shared with you that he preached about being the light of the world, and it says, Many believed in him in verse 30 as he was saying these things. Man, I mean, they're filling out their decision cards. The revival is on, boy. I mean, we're going to have us some serious. Follow-up, some serious baptism, some serious discipleship to take place, but the problem is Jesus keeps on preaching. And in verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, these same ones, he said to those Jews who had believed in him, he says, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. Huh. Now, didn't he just speak to a bunch of people that were believing in him? Doesn't that make them his disciples anyway? He says, no, if you abide in me, you're truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And these guys, these guys, they they put down their pencil. They still got their decision card. But they put their pencil aside, and they're like, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? These guys are especially forgetful. They were in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. We've never been enslaved to anybody. What you talking about? 
And Jesus answered in verse 34, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. And if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find, find no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. And they answer, well, Abraham is our father. And then he goes on later to say, No, sorry guys, you are of your father, the devil. And then in verse 48, by this point, not only is their pencil aside, but their decision card has fallen to the ground, kind of floated down to the ground. Their mouths are ajar, and in verse 48 they say, are we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? To call him a Samaritan would be like saying that you're a piece of trash and that you have a demon. They dropped their decision card, they dropped their pencil, and now they're calling him a piece of trash. The very same who had believed in him. And then, in verse 52, they say, now we know you have a demon. And then look down in verse 59, and they picked up stones to throw at him. They put their decision cards down, they put their pencils down, and now they're ready to stone him. The reality is what took place there in verse 30 is that it was milquetoast belief. And the things that are characterized with milquetoast belief is a spiritual pride. How dare you say that I'm dead and decaying? How dare you say that I'm completely and absolutely and utterly undeserving of this gospel and this Christ? How dare you? There's a spiritual pride that goes along with milquetoast belief. And you see it right here dripping on this page of chapter 8. And then you also see it in the spiritual lethargy that we looked at last week. In John chapter 12 where Jesus says, believe the imperative. He shouts out, walk while you have the light. And their response is, um, you know, we've heard that the Christ remains forever. What are you talking about? Why are you so urgent? What do you mean the Son of Man must be lifted up? That's milk toast belief right there. There's no urgency in it. And if you studied Amos this week, you also wrecked by milk toast belief with a bunch of people that were going through the motions in worship. They were still worshiping. They're going on their pilgrimages to Gilgal, going on their pilgrimages to Bethel, going on their pilgrimages to Bethesda. And they're still worshiping. They're still having their solemn assemblies. And God says, get the stench of your fatlings out of my nostrils. I will not even listen to the noise of your worship. But they're attending church. What do you mean? Because it's milk toast belief. You want to know what robust chest hair belief looks like? That's what I want to know. It looks like this blind man in chapter 9. Look at verse 24. They call him in again, these Pharisees. They called him in and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Give the Credit to God, formerly blind guy. Don't give it to this man because we know this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. You hear the sarcasm in that boy? But you hear the confession? I mean, he's not holding back. He shouted in the streets to his neighbors, no, I'm that guy. And now he's before the Pharisees, the guys who could boot him out of the synagogue. 
And he's saying, no, man, I don't know what you guys are talking about. All I know is I was blind and now I see. Explain that. And they said, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I I think I've told you that already, you guys. And you do not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? This guy's got guts, man. This guy's about Christ. He doesn't care what anybody thinks of him anymore. He cares about Christ. And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. And they go on and eventually boot him out of the synagogue. The picture here of robust belief is in verse 35. Jesus heard that they cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered and said, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Where is he? Let me at him. And Jesus said, you have seen him now with your eyes, and now you're seeing him with your heart, and it is he who's speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. The word there for worship means that he fell on his face in worship. That's robust chest hair belief. The difference between those two, the milk toast belief and the robust chest hair belief, seems to be what John is getting at at the verse that I've read about a hundred times, probably more than that in the last four years. The reason he wrote the book of John. Listen to it again and now hear it in terms of the difference between these two sorts of beliefs. He says, I've, it's in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. You've got to go back. It's the reason he wrote the book. It's like the legend for a map. So we go there and it says, I've written these things so that you may believe. Because you may not. I mean, I've written them, but you might go, I don't need that. But I've written them so that you may believe. And then he goes on to say, remember that subjunctive mood? Then he goes on to say, and that believing you may have life in his name. He can't say it's a done deal because you might be a milk toast believer. You might not be one of those real robust chest hair believers like this formerly blind dude. I've written these things so that you may believe and that believing you may have life in his name. Some will believe like they believe they're going to eat lunch. That's milk toast belief. Some will believe like they believe in their local state farm agent if the house burns down. <laughs> I believe I got a policy. I'm paying my monthly note, monthly bill. That's milk toast belief. Because then there's some that will forsake all and with reckless abandon believe on and after Christ like the blind man on his face. That's robust belief. Something is missing from these guys, these many, even of the authorities who believed in him, and it's a key marker of true faith. Turn to Romans chapter 10. This week I was driving to Rockwall, and I had the chance to listen to Steve's second message on Romans 10. And while Steve was preaching, there were dots getting connected. Um... Lines being drawn between what we're seeing here in John chapter 12 and Romans chapter 10. 
And as I listened, I, 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 I didn't pull over and make notes. I did the dangerous thing with my Palm Pilot and tried to write notes and record notes and do everything else. I was in such a hurry. But this is the fruit of some of that revelation from Steve's message from Romans chapter 10. Look in verse 9. I bet this is a passage you've heard before. If someone else led you to the Lord, this is a traditional passage to share, and it's appropriate to share this passage. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I like those four words. (laughs) I want to be on the receiving end of those four words. You will be saved. So I want to pay attention to what's in front of them and actually what's after them too. Listen. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. One of the beauties of this passage is it does such a nice job of tying last Sunday's message with this Sunday's message. Is it the heart of belief, the believing heart, explains really what I was so desperately trying to share last Sunday. The believing heart, this picture of a a heart that believes, is not just a location where belief begins. It's not just a location where we might kind of say that belief resides, that that it fills forth from, but it also explains the character of true belief. Like a heart beats, boom, 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 boom. The believer believes after Christ. Boom, 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 boom. It's not something that he or she stops doing any more than someone will give their heart the day off. You might take Saturdays off, but your heart doesn't. You don't give a holiday to your heart. It's the obvious muscle in our body. There are others, but it's the obvious muscle in our body that does not take siesta. Ever. Because if it does, you die. So, as Christ's illustrations are always so perfect, this illustration of the believing heart is the perfect illustration of what it means to believe. As I was sharing last week, yesterday's belief and yesterday's beat does nothing for today. The fact that my heart beated yesterday at 10, wait, 9.57 does nothing for 9.57 today. I know some of you are troubled over the issue of assurance. And let me share with you that assurance is dispensed daily. Just like the beat is dispensed daily. Just like the most important beat to me is the beat that I'm feeling and experiencing right now and the next one and on to the last one. The fact that my heart began beating for Christ at age six is nice and all. But that beat does nothing for today. I need the nourishment of a current beat. I need the hemoglobin and the oxygen and all those things that blood carries. The beating heart for Christ, if true, doesn't stop or take a holiday until you're dead. It doesn't take a break just because you have a sweet opportunity for sin. I think I'll put Jesus aside and go live with my gal for a while. I think I'll put the bride aside and go live with my gal for a while so we can kind of test out if marriage is going to work for us. That's just a random example, but it's a common example in our community. People that supposedly profess belief in Christ? I don't think so. The robust, true believing heart beats for Christ yesterday, today, 
in the next minute, tomorrow, until you die. And so wonderfully, that's when you pass from life here to life eternal. But notice what goes with that believing heart. That big and that I accentuated. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart. He flips it backwards in the next verse. It's a chiasmus is what that's called where he flips it upside down. For the, with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Where there is a heart beating belief. True belief. Robust chest hair belief. There's confession. Where there's an absence of confession. That beat is not real. That beat is not true. Confession goes with a true beat. But it doesn't earn your place in the kingdom. It's a representation of those who are truly being saved. Like wool is to a sheep. Believing, heart belief, and confession will be to true believers. Now the problem is, we have this weird mindset about something that must be true, like true love. If it's true, then I just forsake all. I just can't. If it's true, I'm just carried away with it. I don't even have to try and work at it. And that's what qualifies as true. And the reality is, that's, that, that's a worldly view. Recognizing this is true, if you feel like, well, if I have to work at confession, then it must not be true. That's the biblical picture of walking. That's the picture of engaging. Is that if you're hearing this right now and you go, man, my life is void of confession. I must not be saved. Then start confessing. You won't earn your salvation, but if you're truly His, you'll just be bearing some wool. Get it on. Enjoy Him out loud because the one that is truly beating after Christ speaks. The true belief is a beating heart with a mouth and it sings and it shares and it shepherds and it teaches parents that have stewardship over little bitty lives. True belief teaches urgently. True belief also has a mouth that disciples. Almost as if it's like the last thing that the object of our worship said when he left. Who can I be spent on? Who can I spend my life on? True belief is a beating heart with a mouth that sings, with a mouth that shares, with a mouth that shepherds, with a mouth that teaches, with a mouth that disciples, and it worships and enjoys Christ out loud. That's what confession is. Let me show you the impact of a confessing heart. Revelation chapter 12. Once you see the impact, the beautiful impact of a beating, confessing, beating heart and confessing mouth. That's what we'll call it. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And they have conquered him. They is the saints. Him is Satan, the dragon, the beast. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. Now that stands to reason. If you paid attention on a sermon a few weeks ago where 
Jesus said, so the Son of Man must be lifted up and that Satan will be cast out in this event of my being lifted up. You would appreciate that it's by the blood of the Lamb that Satan is defeated. But then there's another and there. This is a beautiful and. And it says, and by the word of their testimony. That's they there, the saints. That's you and me, hopefully. By the word of their testimony, for they loved not their own lives even unto death. They loved not their own lives is a sweet picture of not loving man's approval and man's glory. But it's loving God's glory and God's approval more. And not loving your own life even unto death and confessing that enjoyment of Christ that Satan is defeated that way. Turn to Matthew 25. This is a parable that you may have heard before. But it's one that's especially appropriate for what we're talking about right now. It's the parable of the talents. I'm not going to read the whole parable. Basically what happens is a man goes on a journey. He calls his servants to him and he gives them different values of, of money or resources and says, go do something with this. He gives them treasures essentially to go do something with. And here's a response after he returns for one who's been faithful. Listen to what he says in chapter 25, verse 21. His master said to him, and this him is one who ended up with five talents. He, fi- he, he earned five talents more. He doubled the talents that were given to him. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful o- over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Those are words that I want to hear with the riches that are this gospel in response to the riches that this gospel is. I want the Lord to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been a good steward with this gospel. You've enjoyed this Christ out loud. And I'm going to end this morning with the fate of a heart that does not confess. Matthew chapter 10. Here's the fate of a heart that does not confess. This is why I tremble. This is why I quake. This is why I really have a difficult time with ivory beds of ease, flowery beds of ease, with statements like, I know I'm saved. So everyone who acknowledges me, that's that's the same word as confess that's used in John 12 that these guys were unwilling to do. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge slash confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, that's the the opposite of not confession, is you deny him. When you do not speak of him, when you do not enjoy him out loud, at home, at office, in your cubicle, in your warehouse, In Tuesday, in Saturday, at the bowling alley, at the rifle range, at the horse stable. When you do not enjoy him out loud, the opposite of that is that you deny him. And he says that whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. If there's no confession of Christ, there will be no confession of you being His 
when you're on your face before the white throne judgment. When I am on my face before the white throne judgment, I want to hear from the lamb that's standing there as if slain. He's mine. He's with me. Because he enjoyed me out loud. He confessed me before men. He loved me out loud with his life. And with his mouth, he enjoyed my son. With his pursuits and with his passions, he was a sweet aroma. He was salty. He was bright. He's mine, Father. Ben, enter into the joy of the Master. That's what I desperately want to hear from me. I want to hear it from my wife. I want to hear it for three little kids that I've been given stewardship over the soil of their hearts. Not with the outcome, but with the soil that is prepared. And then I'm sowing that, that seed And it's what I want to hear about this people that I've been given stewardship with with the other elders here at this body and with this word week by week and preaching and teaching of the word. Whatever it might do to the Christian culture, whatever it might say to Greenville, to Christianity in Greenville for decades, I want to be faithful to what this Bible says. And I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And I want the people that I have given and I've been given the sweet opportunity to walk with to hear the very same words. Let me pray. Lord, how could we not enjoy you out loud? If we have seen you, if we are engaging you, if we are seeing the gospel in the great scandal that it is, if we are enjoying the cross, if we are appreciating the stench of our own tombs, and if we're hearing the effectual call of Christ from death to life, how can we be silent? Lord, forgive us of our silence. If there are those in this room that are not confessing and are burdened to confess, Lord, create that in us, a confessing, enjoying, out loud people. Like woolest sheep. Lord, we beg for it. Thank you so much for this gripping reality and picture of robust chest hair belief. We want to be all there. We want to be faithful stewards. And we know that's your work, and we confess it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.